Hello, you are listening to Decipher This, a podcast about music and technology from Ensemble Decipher. My name is Rob Cosgrove. And I'm Nilufara Nurbakhsh. And we are very excited to be speaking with Paula Mathewson today. Paula is a composer who writes both electroacoustic and acoustic music and realizes sound installations. She is professor of music at Wesleyan University, where she teaches experimental music, composition, and music technology. She is also the founder and artistic director of Tone Burst Laptop Ensemble and Electronic Arts Ensemble at Wesleyan. Paula has written for diverse instrumentations, such as run-on sentence of the pavement for piano, ping-pong balls, and electronics, which Alex Ross of The New Yorker noted as being entrancing. Her work often considers discrepancies in musical space, real, imagined, and remembered. Awards include the Walter Henderson Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Fulbright Grant, two ASCAP Martin Young Composers Awards, and the 2014-2015 Elliott Carter Broome Prize. Thank you so much again for your time, Paula. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be on uh, you know, to be invited for this. So thank you so much, and uh, I'm thrilled to be included in the distinguished uh, series of of guests and music makers and thinkers and artists you uh, bring about you. So yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> of course, yeah. We thought that I mean we've been asking this question to a lot of our podcasts uh, interviewees, but we just want to get sort of a background on you and how you got into music how you got into technology and kind of your path to where you are now. Certainly. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, so many routes that we take through music, right? Like many of them are circuitous and uh, <laughs> there's the lines we put on our resumes and then there's the stories that actually go behind them, which are much more <laughs> curvy and naughty and like, and filled with all these twists and turns that like, and strange paths that diverge. Um, and so just to put it very, very briefly, I was always into music. I'm the daughter of a string teacher. Um, my mother is a cellist and she taught strings in the public schools um, my whole life. And, um, and my father uh, worked in radio as a broadcaster. And um, so like those, you know, one of my favorite things was going to, to the radio station that I worked at as part of too, and just sort of like geeking out on all the lights and things. But in addition to that, um, by the time I got to my undergraduate, I wasn't certain right away that I was going to major in music, but I had a really great cohort of people that I started with, uh, which included uh, Jeff Snyder and Ryan Ross Smith. And what was great about that was that I was coming from a string background, and then Jeff came from a sampling background. His instrument was a Kai sampler. And Ryan uh, was, I think, trained as a pianist. But like the three of us formed a, along with some uh, colleagues and comrades, including Christian Zamora, Teresa Campbell, uh, Morgan Luker, Brian Honerman, Sarah Florino. We started this group called uh, 52 Splinters. Oh, Adrian Thalassinos, too. <laughs> and that was a performance art group. Um, and so it was great to be able to, um, you know, sort of do these contexts of writing and creating music, which included uh, like string quartets and orchestra and things like that, and then do pieces which involved live electronics and ways of, uh, you know, live carpentry, like paint, glass breaking, balloons, like um, car doors, you know, just things that weren't like necessarily um, sort of conventionally Western art music as it was being taught to us at that point. <laughs> but I have to say, I think there's, like, it'd be remiss of me not to mention our teacher, Steve Dembski, who passed away very recently. And 
you know, he was someone who was very, like, we thought we were breaking a lot of rules. And then we're surprised to find out that he was actually encouraging of what we were doing. <laughs> and so, um, you know, so many of the barriers we had um, were actually in our heads. Uh, and so what uh, was really wonderful was to kind of try out some ways of engaging with things and then to to not have that be um, not have that be suppressed, have that be encouraged. And so I certainly have been reflecting on the debt of gratitude I owe him as well as um, many of my teachers um, as a result of that. And I uh, share in a lot of the condolences so many of his friends and family and, and former students and colleagues have expressed. And then, well, then I guess I've sort of been kind of bit by that bug of electronics. I was also really indebted to uh, Michael Tchaikovsky and my teacher Tom Zell, who kind of put me in contact with him. And that was my first time kind of realizing that like people not only listen to music, but they write it and they can do all these like wonderful ways of playing with it. And that was my first time seeing a Buchla synthesizer. I didn't own a computer. So that was my first time seeing that you could put sound into a computer. You know, like um, there are all these things that were just sort of um, at that age for me, just kind of <laughs> blew my mind because I didn't know it was possible. And then once you see that there's not only a door, but like a forest of doors, it's really hard to not want to try and open a bunch of them and see what's behind them. Thank you so much for that. Um, actually, at the audience listening to this may not know this, but Paola Matthewson is the inspiration for Ensemble Decipher, as um, I got to actually be in a laptop ensemble at Splice Festival in 2017 that Paola directed. And speaking of laptop ensembles, uh, Paula, can you tell us a little bit about this medium of the laptop ensemble and what that is and why that interests you and, um, you know, what capacities that you think it has that maybe other modes of chamber music making wouldn't necessarily have? I was so excited when you told me that. And that's like one of the most <laughs> absolutely gratifying things you can possibly hear. It's like, wow, amazing. So, and I mean, it was such a pleasure to work with that crew of people like in, uh, at Splice. And then just to yeah, know definitely. that that has blossomed into work that you're doing now is absolutely thrilling. So I'm just <laughs> so happy for all of you. Um, Thank you. The, um, you know, like when I started my, um, when I was going from undergraduate to graduate, like I just kind of like, that was when I first like, wow, you can like get a laptop and make music like, and, uh, um, and so that was when I first started hearing about things happening with Plork, right? Like, and that was kind of the first sort of moment where it was like, okay, people are like actually making ensembles out of this, um, the Princeton Laptop Orchestra. And that was a sort of huge kind of revelation to me, too. And at the same time, I moved to New York at that point. And so that was sort of a moment of having the venue share, which I've also tried. Like, that is fantastic. I hope it's still running in New York. I think it is. Um, but it was a place that every Sunday you could go and improvise on electronics. And, like, they would find a place where you could play from... 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. on Sunday nights. And so, like, kind of knowing that you had a regular place, you show up, you can share and you play and you plug in, they would have featured sets, and then you were also able to just play. And so, like, being able to sort of have those different places of music making. And also, I have to say, like, it's really important, right, like, to have those liminal spaces where you're not presenting things to an audience as a finished product, but you're presenting something that is taking the risk of showing something new and having a warm and audience to like engage with with that is especially with technology because we have stuff break all the time <laughs> as I'm sure you're well familiar with now that you're like running your laptop ensembles 
the uh, you know there's part of it right like which is that our like the sort of question of instrumentation right like because there's um once we make something that maybe has a specific function it's hard not to find other ways to sort of play with it right like so the laptop is as much a music making instrument as it is many other things but you know, what are the things that are inherent to this way of playing, this way of working, and what does it invite? What are the suspicions of the instrument? Um, what are the sort of encouragements of the instruments? What are the sort of things that are being uh, projected onto it? Like, there's a lot of possibility for investigation in there. And so uh, it has, it's correspondingly rich. Like, there's there's no right or wrong way to do a laptop ensemble, I think. Like, there's a question of just, like, how you approach it. And uh, so you see that diversity of approach across a number of different ensembles now, too. Um, and so and that's great. It's not like not every string quartet is the same. So similarly, not every laptop ensemble should be the same. <laughs> and it's nice to think of it as not specifically a chamber music thing, too, right? Like because it expands beyond those bounds. But if you have that sort of background, too, what does that enable? And what does it also circumscribe? And how can you sort of be conscious of that and so like with Tomeburst, and so you'll remember too from the splice ensemble too there are a number of different pieces that were kind of used different levels of of types of software or so and so like one of the pieces that we used uh did was um a piece by daniel fishkin which required people to go on okay cupid and then use text to score or text to speech editing and things like and so like there was part of that which was sort of Okay, like you know, and so some people were like, what was so fun, right? Like was to see that um that was something that some people were comfortable with and that was something that other people were not comfortable with. But then like so then that question of how you engage with that and you and Daniel's a very thoughtful and careful composer, and so like he was also very um specific about setting up a right like setting up an orientation to that that is respectful towards the music making and towards the sort of aspects of, of being together. But it's not about necessarily high tech like i'm making a software sound synthesis system that's going to turn me into a sorcerer you know it's something about what does it mean to be making this connection and like an important person for me early on that uh was kind of theorizing some of this too is mary flanagan who she's talking about this sort of being a kind of space like the space between oneself and the laptop and then what does that mean in terms of like being in a space with people too and so it's something that's been um, we've all been trying to explore a little bit in terms of the context of the pandemic, because a lot of people think, right, like that if you have a laptop, it's closing you off. And there is truth to that. Uh, but then what does it mean to like have this as a means of making sound so that you're actually still tuned in to other people? And that is part of our power as musicians is that like we try to listen across as much as we can. Or like, what does it mean to try and achieve something together? Or in the case of like we did like one of our um Tomeburst alumni Dina Maccabee did a piece uh, which was a arrangement of a Robert Ashley piece called Waiting Room and that question of like what does it mean to perform boredom like what does it mean to perform like waiting like because there are all these sort of things that are bound up in that but like the things that make people I think a lot uh, make people suspicious a lot of times of laptop ensemble are the things that also contribute to its power um, because you could be checking email and in fact one person wrote a piece like that where you had to check your email and that was part of the piece so (laughs) So it's not to resist those things, it's to be, it's not a stable identity. And so as long, you know, and if anything, it's going to be a transitional technology. And so um, as, as, you know, um, our sort of computational devices become increasingly miniaturized and closer to the body, 
um, that will have an impact correspondingly in how we make and engage with sound. But hopefully we kind of keep that hacker's impulse to keep um, making that something that we can be critical and playful with and mindful of in terms of what it allows and what it doesn't allow. Yeah, this all this is a perfect segue into my next question because um, it's someone that was kind of like kind of theorizing about this and kind of really thinking and putting into practice these ideas of connection and how what it means to use technology to form these musical connections is Pauline Oliveros. And I know that that's something that we have in common that we've both been, I mean, everyone in the electronic music scene has really been, um, she's been a huge influence. Um, so we're just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Pauline's legacy and kind of how she's influenced your artistic practice, like in specific. Well, certainly she's impacted so many people. And I mean, I think right now too, <laughs> find a laptop ensemble, get them all together and throw a rock and find someone who hasn't been influenced by Pauline. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's a terrible analogy. Don't throw any rocks. But um, <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's hard to, you know, overstate or understate. I, I mean, there's there's part of it, right? Like, which is is the music, the musicianship, and then the sort of creativity and the openness of, of her of her career i think her approach to sound right but then part of it too at least for me it was like with the sort of possibility of being able to live a life in sound that um was was different and that like was proof that you could not only live but thrive and live with and 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 live in ways that like engaged with other people so you weren't alone while you were doing it you know and um you know, there's, you know, like, I've always respected the fact, too, like, you know, like, the work that she did um, later on in, in her career with adaptive use musical instruments and things like that, where there was this whole, like, she kind of kept sort of expanding and staying open to ways of music making. Um, and um, that's something that, that you know, it, for people who influence us like that, right, like, it's not just that they wrote a great piece that we love, per se, which can be as true, but it's also the fact of the way that they... Um, the way that she stayed very, very open and like, yeah, um, engaged. And so like, you know, I, the, so I started, you know, two laptop ensembles, right? Like one, which was, uh, Flea, the, uh, FIU laptop and electronic arts ensemble, which is now run by Jacob Sudel, um, at FIU and then Tone Burst. And in both cases, she came out for our, like concerts and worked with us. And like, you know, she was just so generous and so. And she was unafraid, too, to engage with the ways in which people, like, all came to sound through very, very different backgrounds. And that sort of level of, of being open was really transformative. I mean, there's, yeah, no other word for it, I guess. Um, but I think, like, when you talk to people, I'm sure that when you talk to people about this, they have equally very, like, strong and kind of powerful visual memories of that because for a lot of times, you know, there is something that we're able to do with sound that's very, very different. and there's part of it which is like by doing uh, sound making with uh, in the context of of one of her pieces or meditations, you know, like is that like you are sharing space um, and going to a state of possibility with a number of other people. And in that there is a power. And for a number of people, that's their first time kind of touching it, um, feeling it. And and so correspondingly, people have um, because a lot of times uh, for so many people raised in the Western musical art tradition, right? Like you go into a state of like of group learning and a lot of times it's <laughs> we feel judged and, and and not, you know, um, and that's not to say that that doesn't happen. But there's a certain powering um, 
in engaging in, uh, with each other like that. And I'm, I'm, I'd be curious uh, to hear more of your reactions too, simply because uh, she's been that figure for so many people. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I it's like one of the pities in my life that I've never met her because literally every uh, composer that I uh, has inspired me and many of my teachers have all been like um, had some impactful um, relationship with her that has really changed her life and their way of listening and also the, the way of music making, which I think is very revolutionary in how open and inviting it is. And so certainly that has been passed on to our generation and we, we're just really grateful for that legacy. Let's take a listen to Paula and her ensemble Tone Burst, which she directs at Wesleyan University play Pauline Oliveris' Lion's Tale. compositional output um <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna be very selfish here and talk about one of my all-time favorite pieces of yours <laughs> um uh, which is um titled of an implacable subtraction written for dana jessen percussion and electronics um and i have come to this piece so many times uh it's one of my favorite pieces of all time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the background of this piece and your compositional process? Oh, sure. I'm so glad that you like that piece. Um, it's a very special one. Um, so Dana Jessen, who is an extraordinary composer, performer, improviser, um, bassoonist uh, extraordinaire, um, she and I had wanted to work on a piece together for a while. So she has a number of what she calls sort of uh, Dana-specific techniques because she's cultivated such a kind of specific and like very specialized vocabulary to the instrument. So we applied to um, uh, do a residency together um, at CMAS, which I recommend everyone check out and go and apply to because it is an amazing space run by amazing people and uh, with really wonderful composers and performers around it. And so we're in Morelia, Mexico, working together and kind of developed this like that was where we sort of developed a kind of series of tools of improvising with uh, one another. And, you know, a huge part of what people um, respond to very viscerally in that piece is that at the very end of it, she um, takes the reed from uh, the bassoon and then performs the reed alone. 
And there's part of that is that that has such enorm, you know, enormous acoustical power. And there's something extremely emotive about it as well that um, a number of people have a sort of uh, quite visceral response to. Uh, part of it for me, too, is hearing it the first time was just like being really um, just having a, have a very having a very strong response to the acoustical power of it. Um, but also it just, you know, there's something about the waves of it. Like, um, But that piece, a lot of it, too, is was sort of playing with like in the in the text in the program notes for it a lot of it says like about choosing one option over others which draws its line the titles um drawing from uh, julio cortazar's book uh hopscotch and um cortazar is a big uh, kind of influence for me and so one of the things in that was sort of uh like how where that piece started out and where it ended were two very different places. Um, and it went through two different iterations before ending up at the third one, which is what is released on the album. And then the percussion only ever happened once. Hopefully we get to do that again. Um, but that the sort of version of that that's online was through the um, Avant uh, uh, Music Festival. And so Matra Percussion joined. And so she had this like background of, uh, of like a number of percussions that come in at the end and then play along with her. Um, and so it's, you know, then kind of has that sort of power of like moving away from the instrument and then sort of having the sort of global field of people playing along, um, with it. And yeah, um, that was a really beautiful and wonderful collaboration. So, and that's part of her album Carve, which uh, also includes contributions by, uh, Peter Swenson and Sam Pluta and like, yeah, it's just a really, uh, wonderful album. Thank you so much. Um, Actually, looking into uh, the program notes of this piece a little bit, um, you also mention feedback and resonance of the instrument as uh, being part of the composition process as well. And I've noticed that uh, both of these items come back into your other pieces as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in feedback and resonance in general? Oh, certainly. I mean, the two end up working so well together, too. But um, the... I mean, feedback is revealing, right? Like, there's part of it. There's good feedback. There's bad feedback. Um, there's, you know, and it has so many applications, right? Like, so um, in the case of working with that particular system, part of what we were interested in was um, placing a microphone sort of above um, the opening of the bassoon and then sort of playing with, like, what um, activating feedback by and then sort of suppressing it and then um, through the activation of the instrument. Um, and so then it becomes, you know, part of what's interesting about feedback to me is that um, it sounds very different in a way than than pure synthesized tones and things like that, too. In fact, that was a question that um, Nick Collins had asked backstage once at a concert at Stony Brook, which he's like, why can you tell that something is feedback instead of side tones? And, you know, and I sort of was uh, kind of thinking about that. And part of it to me is that like feedback implicates other bodies in space. And so when you watch these sort of videos, and it's one of my favorite things to do is to like keep compilations of uh, when feedback is represented on movies, um, right? Like, and so when you see it on, for example, like on Pixar flicks, and that's like kind of how I introduce it to when I teach it is like, you know, uh, so like, um, so for example, even to like in Despicable Me, right? Like a minion goes on stage and then like, you know, and then coughs into a microphone and then you hear feedback. And uh, like, it's, there's no reason for that to happen. It's a completely animated environment. So why is feedback being used in that case? And so often, right? Like it's sort of showing the body in peril, but then the body amplified and presented in space. And so, but it's not just the body, it's the idea that the body then comes through the mouth, like, and that, like, there's, um, and, and that sort of, um, 
a sense of, of sociality and, and delivery that's being expected. And in a similar way, like there's part of it, which is that by opening up a microphone, which I do a lot in my sort of live electronics setup is to just keep an open mic running um, and then sort of play with that is because then it sort of, it, it takes it so that everything becomes musicalized in a way. And so, and so in doing that, like then, like then if a baby does cry in your performance, it actually, it's a musical act rather than a disruptive act. Like if someone shuts the door, then it activates the frequencies in the space. Like, and so there's a way in which it, um, it, it makes us all part of the music making. Um, but, uh, so often it's thought of as being uh, destructive, which it can absolutely be. Um, uh, but a lot of times too, it's, um, something that, you know, it's been part of, a computation since like you know right like the infinite impulse response filter like there's like always part of it that is embedded in our systems if we just look a little bit
So I think one really interesting topic that we want to talk about with you because you've done all this education now full professor congratulations um <laughs> and you have so so many experiences you did the spice festival and and also you've had you know a plethora of learning experiences as well um electronic music and we're we're in kind of in this situation where we're kind of mentoring these students um from a variety of suny schools in writing pieces some of these students haven't even written for electronics before so it's kind of an interesting experience to kind of build that from the ground up with these with these students um and we're kind of grappling with how to do it in a way that isn't like stifling their creativity or um kind of showing them one way to do it and like kind of keeping things open and i feel like this is something that i found like um and when i've seen you talk and and about your work and about your teaching that that you are able to kind of do it in a way that you know teaches them the fundamentals, but also kind of leaves things open and to break rules and, and you know, has that sort of flexibility. So I'm, it's just a, it's a, there may not be an answer to this, but just wondering um, what sort of approaches you've found that have worked for you, what sort of approaches um, that haven't. Um, yeah, any, any of your thoughts on this topic would be really helpful to us and I think helpful to everyone. I think there's, there's part of it, right, like which um, I'm always curious about in ensembles where there's sort of that balancing of agency um, then and safety and risk, right? And there's a certain amount of like by being in an uh, ensemble, there's part of it in which that like unspoken wise, like you are sort of making an agreement that you're going to be accountable to the other people in that group. And so there's then becomes the question of like, how, how does that get um, enacted? You know? Um, and so, um, because I do find that right. Like there's a, a big difference between um, saying, Oh, please go do this for me. I'm here by your professor. Tra la 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 la. You know, <laughs> like I don't, <laughs> that's eminently less interesting than if someone take something and says like I have something I want to share and then like people can sort of all kind of like be part of that and you know for you know developing a sort of sense of uh, developing the internal ensemble trust is really important uh, as like kind of a as kind of a first prerequisite for that so um and so there's part of it for um for that which is sort of kind of having a lot of sort of steps in between which is like to not then say that, like, because we're doing experimental work and we're working with laptops as our instruments, that does not mean that you're in any way less serious than you would be if you were, like, playing Paganini Caprices all day, right? Like, but, so there's something that's, like, saying, okay, like, this is what I would like to make and, you know, and show as part of this. Um, but, like, I find that there's a lot of times breaking things into sort of smaller groups and steps means that like because a lot of times too is trying to make sure that they're because part of it right like if you're working with a group too a lot of times everyone has different levels of comfort they have different levels of machines um they have different sort of and so the thing too there is to not make someone ever feel bad about like their machine you know because like i did not grow up with a laptop and like i remember the feelings of being like whoa i don't understand anything like um and that's a powerful thing right like because then that's a tool of of like empathy and helping draw other people in and so making sure that people feel comfortable to ask questions when they, um, you know, when, when things don't work. And a lot of times, 
so much will go wrong. So like making sure that that is clear that that is going to happen. And it's not on account of anyone's like, um, you know, <laughs> there's no deficiency in any like thing, person or system in that is part of it. It's just like, it always happens. So, and I think that there's something about that, like these practices apply to life too, right? Like, and so there's so many things about like being a composer, being a musician that like are relevant in, in all the things we do. And so I think that like finding that as a way of making it relatable to people, right? Like who don't necessarily come from a musical background, but that can find their way in through some of these ways of, of really having thoughts about the way they direct their attention towards like sound and towards each other. And because a lot of times people have some experience with that. And if it's, they're being asked to do it differently, um, and then especially do it with each other, then that becomes a pretty powerful door to open. So, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think about like a lot of the teachers I've had, like both made me feel like I could always learn more. I could always try new things and that like the whole building wasn't going to catch on fire if I like messed up. So, um, they were really encouraging. Um, and I think that that's a very, very important balance to strike. But, but like one of the things too, like some of the pieces that I started out with that, you know, are things like, um, new sound meditation, which we sort of adapted, uh, from Pauline Alvaro's, um, I use my piece Lathyrus a lot too, because it means that people have to look at each other <laughs> and they have to know their sample banks and they have to be able to communicate with each other. Um, but like people have always been able to engage with things in ways that I would never expect. And so that is part of what is so fun about doing, doing a group. At the same time, I feel like there's something about having the risk, which is not that you just press space bar and then the whole thing runs on its own and everyone sits there and like twiddles their thumbs. Um, because like students tend to get um, really bored with that too. And so that question of like, what does it mean to set up a trajectory that you develop together where there is some sense of like, because if you have that, like, you can know, right? Like, you know, when you come off of a performance, and you've done a terrible job. <laughs> like, And those are useful experiences. Like, those are really useful experiences, especially as a group, because then you can talk about it, right? And then you can get better, and then you can grow as an ensemble. So, like, that is um, all very, very valuable. Thank you so much, Paula. I feel like... Um all the things you just mentioned, that question, I, I need to hear myself and remind myself to do as well still after so many years. Um, so thank you so much for that. Well, um, I just really want to also thank you again for your time uh, to be on this episode of Decipher This. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm so glad to hear what you're up to and all and congratulations on having your first in together person concert in a while <laughs> and uh i can't wait to hear mike Murray's piece and yeah i'm really excited for everything you guys are doing so please just keep me in your loop will do thank you so much thank you for listening to today's episode of decipher this your hosts are nilu and rob and the episode was edited and produced by johi bohegan thank you see you next time